podcast ain't played nobody. There's there's a, a surefire way to cure the lull of the offseason, Bill. And as we approach what I've always considered to be the Valley, I talk about the Valley on the show, and that is as you get closer to July 4th, things completely shut down. And then there's one cure-all, Bill. Do you know what that cure-all is? Oh, I know exactly what that cure-all is. Preseason publications, and it's arguing about them. <laughs> and so in order to do that to maximum effectiveness, we have brought on uh, please welcome to the show for the first time. This is our. This is the editor that we cheat on Jason Kirk with, because both right. you and I are contributors to Athlon Sports. So, please welcome our mistress editor from Athlon Sports. Uh, hi, Mitch. It's Mitch Light, everybody. Uh, good morning, gentlemen, and I'm I'm happy to be your mistress. And I have a very important question. I'm I'm, I'm glad to be on the show. But uh, you guys often refer to yourselves uh, the show as PAPN. Is PAPN acceptable? No. no. Oh. So this is like USC doesn't want to be called Southern California or Western Kentucky now wants to be called WKU. You guys are like really adamant about this? Mitch, every time that I go, if I'm on the road and Bill has a guest co-host or when I was out on paternity leave, I, Bill will purposefully let listeners use it and we'll have on guests that use it. So it's a secret. It's a division oh. within our marriage. Oh, wow. Oh, I, okay. I don't ever say Pappen. Don't look at me. I just, you know. You just wait. did. Different levels of tolerance that we're working with here. Yes, okay. exactly. No, okay. I'm hard line on it. Um, so this is podcasting, play nobody. It's a college football marriage of numbers and words. Uh, my name is Stephen Godfrey. That's the robot, Bill Connolly. You guys know the spiel. We're going to jump into a, a variety of topics with Mitch because we have a bunch of questions. Not all of it is going to be really a, very little of it is going to be 2017 hard up preview stuff. Um, Mitch, I'm going to start with a, with a question right off the top and it's not going to be who's the better writer to edit because I know it's Bill cause he's way more functional and way more on time. Um, uh, well, I'm not sure about that last part, but anyway, the, the magazine, it, it jumps out on at you, no matter what cover you pick up the most accurate predictions on the newsstand. Do you need me to maybe throw a little shade at Phil Steele for you? If I see him in a press box, do you want me to intimidate him? I'm a very large man. Uh, with long, with longish hair too. That, yeah. that, that adds to your intimidation. No, uh, you do not have to do that. We can pick our, we can fight our own battles, Stephen. Okay. Godfrey. All right. Uh, I'm just, hey, I'm out here. I'm a hired gun. No, we, 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 uh, we are proud of our predictions. We don't take them too serious. We don't take ourselves too seriously. We take our predictions seriously. We try to be accurate. And certain publications out there, uh, you know, like to brag about their accuracy over the last 17 and a half years or whatever. And and, and there is a website that that tracks all of this and last year Athlon Sports we were fortunate enough to be the most accurate of all the websites and preseason magazines so we thought we would just kind of brag about it on the on the cover hey if we don't come in first next year we we'll probably won't have it on there so but we were uh, we well, were glad to be has, number one everybody has their own definition of accuracy technically you can find one no matter the year that will say you're the best and so I'd say just keep saying you're the best I like that Bill Connolly that's a really good line of thinking yeah so you know uh, in the way for those that aren't familiar with stassen.com the website that tracks the preseason accuracy of publications and websites it's not based on national championship picks or your top 25 picks it's based on conference predictions so like wow. picking the Sun Belt to this uh, ranking system is just as important to picking the SEC so like if you if you pick 
Georgia State fifth and they come in ninth and you're docked four points, that's the same as picking Florida first and if they come in fifth. So if that all made sense. Wow. So that speaks to the essence of this program, no doubt. Um, yeah, hey, yeah. The, the, uh, we, the, getting the AAC right to us is just as important as getting the SEC. <laughs> so was that popular with you guys? Was that the right thing to say to you guys? No, oh, yeah. absolutely. The funny thing was, was as we were uh, every year, I, I come to Mitch and I'll have a couple pitches, and then Mitch will have a couple like in-house ideas. We'll pitch back and forth, and then he sends me out, do features, blah blah. blah. And then at some point, this was the first year that I worked on the anonymous coach scouting, which was when you gave when you said, "Hey, do you want to do this?" Uh, I was I was like, "Yeah, it's fine. It's cool." You know, I talk to coaches every day. I did not quite realize when you give a series of coaches anonymity how absolutely ridiculously nasty it gets because <laughs> we have different governors for, for the features I do at SB Nation. This is a little different because what you're asking these coaches to do specifically is to basically size each other up. And so if I'm anonymous, it's usually if, if I'm working on an anon thing at SB Nation, it's usually more about like a particular news story. This was just, hey, tell me about X across the streets team. And it was like I had to edit things out, even though they were anonymous, because I thought they were so catty, for lack of a better term. But I think Mitch called me about halfway through all the process and said, hey, can you do the AAC as well? And that, of course, turned out to be probably the snippiest, because it's the most upwardly mobile conference where you have a ton of coaches who just left, right? I mean, probably the three most notable hires in college football in this past cycle, Texas, Oregon, Baylor, all AAC coaches. We may be primed for that again here soon. So um, that was – Mitch, how long have you guys been doing anonymous coaching or uh, anonymous coach scouting? About 10 years. It's something I incorporated in because some of the other – you know, I think Sports Illustrated started it with their pre, with their uh, preseason magazines and stuff, and it's – I, I'm a fan of the sport. I eat that stuff up just like everyone else does. But it's interesting you said that because I even further edit, not necessarily your stuff, but when it comes in from writers, you know, because we don't want this to be coaches just talking bad about other programs just to talk bad, you know. So, like, I might take some stuff out that is really juicy and really interesting, but I don't necessarily believe it to be true. I think the coach was just kind of just spewing information against his rival. One thing that we did keep in there, and I don't believe you did the SEC first, Stephen, but no, I didn't. It, which I've been asked about several times on, on radio shows is kind of the, the, the negativity about uh, Jacob Eason at, at Georgia. The coach says, to be honest, I think Eason is pretty average at quarterback. I really don't know how much he likes football. It's hard to dispute his talent. He can wow. make every throw. But when you watch him, he's not consistent at all. He's physically gifted as anyone around, but he doesn't scare you. Now, I thought about taking that out because, you know, taking shots at a kid. But I kind of heard that from other people, too, that, hey, you know what? Maybe Jacob Eason doesn't love the sport. Maybe he's not, uh, you, you, know, you know, he was the number one recruit in the country, the number one quarterback. But maybe he's not going to pan out. Maybe he won't be the starter in two or three years. So uh, it's enjoy doing that stuff. But I do watch what we let slip past the goalie. The interesting thing for me was having coaches you would think because of the way we work that they're all that they're very abreast on their opposing team's rosters and and depth charts and it's very interesting to see like certain coaches i would call for certain conferences because I, I did the mac i did i did a couple of, they were more concerned with the job what the job's like for the head coach and so a lot of times I would get guys just being like, well, you know, that's a tough place to that's a tough place to win. So and then then everything they would say would be sort of colored by that, 
Whereas a lot, and some coaches would instantly know, hey, uh, we really don't like their secondary. They give us fits, blah, blah, blah. Most of them were just, everything was framed around the job itself. And then I would say, like, well, can you tell me about, like, this quarterback or this, you know, this particular team or whatever? And they're like, nah, you know, we'll, we'll get the film. It's funny how different coach, like, it, it doesn't surprise me at all in the SEC where it's a year-round life cycle that they would be much more knowledgeable about, like, particular players on opposing teams. It's yeah, very, that, very fascinating. That, that's the stuff that interests me the most as a fan of the sport is, you know, I, I know what pro, I know it's hard to win at UTEP. I know, you know, stuff. I, I like to know you, you, you can't throw on Georgia in first or second down, but you can mm-hmm. on third down because they're taking more chances. That's the stuff to me as a fan that I, I, I eat up. Definitely. Um, tell me a little bit about how this comes together because it, it's become sort of a weird joke amongst fans about how fast these magazines come out. And fast is a very relative term if you don't understand the publishing business. And as you can probably tell us in great length, and I have had some experience of this, when you're in the print journalism side, we've had so much change and, you know, like revolutionary change in how media is consumed. But these these magazines specifically, what you guys do, what Phil and Lindy, they are constants, right? They're something that becomes ritualistic for fans. Tell me a little bit about, like, when did 2017 start in earnest for you guys and then how fast you guys get it together? Yeah, that, great question. Um, and feel free to interject at any time with any questions. We're, we're always thinking of ideas because, you know, you as, as you know, Stephen, you're a guy who likes to kind of be embedded with a team and stuff and – you, you can't just think of an idea one day and go, oh, I'm going to call a school and, you know, can I spend this week with you or something next week? you got to plan way ahead. So one of the stories that Bill Connolly so expertly uh, wrote this year was um, – What's up with the fade? I got that idea. Like, if you're on Twitter in college football, watching college football, like 95% of, you know, fans and media, like, just hate when their team or the game they're covering, someone throws a fade. So I want, like, that was a feature idea that came to me while watching college football last year. So what's up with the fade? So Bill Connolly, we we, we sent Bill Connolly on a mission to find out what is up with the fade. And actually, Bill, you you were the perfect person for the story. And because you took a humorous approach, sort of, but you also took an analytical approach and asked the right question. So actually, that was one of my favorite stories we did this year. But specifically, we start with the actual nuts and bolts of the magazine literally once the season's over, like after the national championship game. Because we have so many stats to gather, uh, you know, re- every team, we, you know, re- returning leaders, all that stuff. Um, so we start our stat gathering, and, and we just start meeting as a staff, uh, you know, in, in January, start talking about feature ideas and all that stuff. Um, I touch base with my writers usually in February. I don't like to scare people, like, in January, like, after they've covered the sport every day for five months, to be like, hey, you ready for the 2017 story? Like, <laughs> I, I, I like to let people decompress a little bit, touch base, say, hey, Bill, you up for the Missouri story again? Yeah, okay, I'll be in touch. So then I work with my, our design team to see if we want to change the, the look of the page. You know, for the most part, these are templated. Year over year, it's the same stuff, but we like to incorporate new stuff. Let's say one year we're adding to the scouting, the anonymous scouting. We're going from 200 words to 400 words. That might take some layout changes and stuff like that. So all throughout the month of, month of February and March, it's just more planning, coming up with feature ideas, uh, working with writers, and stuff like that. And then the stories start coming in in earnest in late March, early April. Now, we've been fortunate because spring there, there's been a trend in spring games to be earlier because, uh, you know, 
guys get hurt, gives them more time to come back and all that stuff. We like to have everything we do post-spring. Unfortunately, our deadlines are earlier and earlier. If I was in charge of circulation, we'd probably come out in late June. But I'm not, so we come out in mid to late May. When is, the, when is it actually, I, I, as someone who's written for Athlon for years, um, when does it actually print? When, when, when do you guys go to the first printing? Late April, which is just absurd. I mean, we have... Wow, so you're talking about the bulk of spring games being usually like the last two weeks of that month. Yeah, I I would say, and I probably, you know, there there were probably about four spring games, four or five spring games that were after we went to press, which is the first time that's ever happened. I mean, when I first started here like 15, 16 years ago, uh, we had everything was post-spring. Now, uh, one thing that has really started to burn us is... It used to be at the end of the school year, guys would announce their transfer. We, we, we'd get some stuff wrong there. Now it's the graduate transfer thing. Yeah. That happens, they, they announce at any time. You know, some guys will announce it in March. Some guys will wait till after spring. Some, so, so, some teams lose guys. Some teams gain guys. So I, I've just learned not to sweat it too much. We're just, when the magazine comes out, there's going to be stuff that's outdated. Not, not a ton of stuff. I mean, this year there's really not a ton of stuff that's outdated. So, but going back real quick just to the processes. You know, all the stories start coming in, and we have uh, a team of a small team of fact checkers here. You know, we do make mistakes; things get things do get by, but we have everything fact checked. Um, and then it goes through our design team, and it gets laid out, and the editors go through it. I figured out yesterday we had for just our, just the college only 868 pages that we do by like in a two week period, basically in April. And then after that, two weeks later, we've got our pro football magazine and then our fantasy football magazine. So we've got a uh, it's, it's a very stressful month of uh, April and, and, and early May. Uh, and for an example, this year, like, we, we go to press. Do you guys remember when Jonathan Giles announced he was leaving Texas Tech? Is, you know, all-conference wide receiver. So I, I get a text on a Friday from Stephen Lassen, one of our editors. Jonathan Giles is leaving. You know, all-conference guy. Starting wide receiver at Texas Tech. We, okay. have Jonathan, we have Jonathan Giles on our Texas Tech cover. That's, huh. already, oh. that's already printed. So my next question was, so my next question was, okay, one good player on a good Power 5 team, how many things does that affect not only the team preview, but the prognostication that you do, as well as design and layout, but so now you've got a cover that's printed, so what do you do? Yeah, we call it the collateral damage, basically. <laughs> okay. Um, we, I panic on a Friday when I'm supposed to be taking my son to his baseball game, and I'm like going online, you know, what do we do? Um, you know, the Texas Tech, Texas has its own cover, and then Texas Tech, Baylor, and TCU share a cover. So we just have to, you know, I call the bosses at Athlon and say, can we get this reprinted? They, you know, our production manager, we figure out how much it costs. We, we deemed that in this case, it was worth eating the money and reprinting it. So we reprinted the Texas Tech uh, cover and got that, you know, it was no, it was not an issue as far as getting it distributed out to newsstands. Like it hadn't been, if, if the magazines had already left the plant and were on their way to newsstands around the country, it's too late at that point, but it wasn't too late. So we reprinted. So in the magazine though, on the Texas tech page, you'll see Jonathan Giles. You'll see him on the depth chart. You will see him on the big 12 page. Now we've taken uh, all big 12 team. We've taken him off all the stuff on the web. Like Stephen Lassen will adjust our all conference teams and take him off. Uh, so once that, Stephen, once we get to that point, we, we, we're not changing our predictions in the magazine, obviously, uh, we might change them on the web. Now I've been asked a lot about Malik Zaire, who obviously we will not have in the magazine. 
we've picked Georgia to win the SEC East barely over Florida. Okay. Now, sometimes that happens late in the process where we've, we've already done our projections. We've done our bowl picks. And, and uh, uh, Bill, you know this. Like if, just if, if you decide that, oh, wait, at the last minute, you think Florida can beat out Georgia, that, that, there's a domino effect. It affects the bowl projections. <laughs> it affects everything. So we, we, we do run across that. And we will work night and day until it's actually printed to get everything as most as accurate as possible and then uh, so on the on the overview one thing that I, I that i don't think a lot of people realize because most of these magazines have multiple covers yes we have 50 you guys have <laughs> but you guys have different content in particular ones so for instance like i think bill you have a feature this year in the national in the in the straight up national edition i guess you call right. it where it has, it has like, like a, yeah, an SEC piece or a Big 12 piece or something, yeah. Right, and then I, I know I did a Joe Moorhead feature, which I assume Mitch is in, like, the Big Ten, and then I, yes. you know, we, and so on and off. So how many different editions are there? Okay, so that, uh, there's six editions. There's five regional magazines for all the, the five power conferences. Sorry, no AAC edition just yet, though. <sighs> that is, hey, I wrote a piece about Houston. <laughs> Come on. I've been fighting for it. Now, uh, so we've got five regional, and the first... 110 pages of each regional magazine is the same. We call them our common pages. You got your, your top 25, you've got your national features, you got your best unit rankings, your bowl projections. The, so the first page 80 in the SEC magazine is the same as page 80 in the Pac-12 magazine. Once you get past 112 or whatever whatever page number, then it's SEC only content. It's Pac-12 only content. And now within the SEC, every school has its own cover. So if you're in Columbia, Missouri. God's country, Bill Connolly, and you're there, you have a Missouri cover. If you're in Alabama, there's an Alabama cover and an Auburn cover. Now, that SEC magazine is the same as the, the one in Missouri. Uh, our national magazine is completely different. It has 256 unique pages, basically, and it has one page on every team. That's my favorite magazine. I just I like it as kind of a just a. a that is the one I'm holding right now. That right, is the, right. that, every year when you send me the the batch copies, I always go to the national one first. Yeah, it's got it's got every team's depth chart, schedule, results, all that stuff. So, and then uh, that has some features that are unique to itself. But what we'll do also is like, I don't think we did it with this one. We actually uh, we did it with the no, yeah, we sorry. Uh, like we'll take some features that are in the Big Ten magazine only and pull those out and put them in the national magazine. We don't okay. like to replicate content too much, but if we really think we've got a good Big Ten-only feature, we might pull it out and put it in the national magazine. So hopefully that all made sense. Gotcha, okay. So I will say the, um, the probably uh, in my given work year, it plays out roughly the same from year to year at this point. In my given work year, I think the most incompetent I feel at any one time is when the Athlon fact-checkers start going through my numbers to no pieces – um, so like that, the first couple of weeks of March or when I'm at my, my uh, most incompetent because they find so many damn things that I screwed up. And the first year I did this, whatever that was, 20, I don't know, 13 or so, 14, maybe, um, I was, I was worried like, holy crap, I missed like 28 things. They're not going to ask me to do this again next year, but they, but you did. So jokes on you. Now you got to fact check this stuff more. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting with Bill's stuff. And for those of you who know, Bill's been a, a big contributor, um, with his advanced stats, we've got like like four or five numbers to kind of dive, a deep dive into some teams. Like 
some of Bill's advanced stats, which I think has a really nice, been a really nice addition. The way I look at it is it's not for everyone. If you don't like it, you don't want to read about these crazy numbers like my dad. Just don't read it. Just read the depth chart, you know. But um, so when they first, when our fact checkers, Bill, first came to me, I was like, hey, don't doubt Bill Connolly. He's the numbers guy. He's right. And then I would email Bill with questions like, and you're like, whoops, got that one wrong. So everyone makes mistakes. That's Welcome what we my life, Mitch. Yes, that, uh, I've been propping him up for years. I, I should have, uh, Bill. Just to make you feel good, I'll, I'll find one of Stephen Godfrey's raw copy with fact, all the fact checking come, and I'll just, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll mail it. Yeah, I'm, I'm a volume shooter, and, and volume yeah. shooters miss sometimes. So you know, blood everywhere when I do stuff. Um, okay, uh, before we get into this this fiasco that you wrote me into, because as I look at the panelists on the top fifty players, I realize that how grossly unqualified I am. I may. Features writer by trade, investigative reporter. It kind of puts food on the table. But when I you 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 sneak it in every year, Mitch. When you're going through freelance assignments, like, hey, do you want to do this thing? It, it always seems simplistic. But before I get to that, but you know what? The freelancers never say no. Well, God no. Yeah, well, yeah. It, because of the bountiful journalism environment that we live in. Uh, Real fast, let's go through, and and this will probably be all we touch on as far as we're not going to sit here and break down the top twenty-five and argue about it. Um, right on the cover. One, two, three, four, Alabama, Ohio State, Florida State, Washington. Can you tell me briefly how you guys got there? Uh, do you feel good about it? And when you're going through and doing this, are you now mindful about this accuracy thing? Yeah, we, we are, definitely. We want, to, you know, we want to get our conference predictions right, and we want to get our playoff predictions right. And we spend you know, a, a lot of time, and you, know, as you, guys, you guys know both Braden, you both know Braden Gall, who's a part of the meetings, and, and he likes to argue about things. So it, <laughs> it, it, it takes a lot of time. So this year was not, you know, we went in in Alabama, Ohio State. You know, you could, I think 80% or 90% of people would probably have Alabama number one, but there's, there's rational arguments for Ohio State number one. I, I think Alabama, Ohio State were, were pretty easy. Florida State was pretty easy being in the top. You know, we, we talked about Clemson a little bit, but we were pretty pretty set on those top three. Number four was was tough. I mean, we, we talked about Washington. We talked a lot about USC. We talked a lot about Penn State. Uh, and we talked about Oklahoma, too. Uh, not necessarily did we think Oklahoma was one of the four best teams in the country, but, you know, they're the best team in a Power, 12, Power 5 conference. If they have a good showing in Ohio State, then run the tables. Surely they'll be in the discussion. They made the playoff two years ago. So, I feel good about our top two. I feel okay about our top three. I don't feel good about our top four. I just not that I don't have faith in Washington. I just uh, I think USC is really good, and then you know Stanford's a good team. Oregon could bounce back. Um, I, I think the Pac-12 has some good teams at the top, so I'm not completely sold on, on USC uh, or, or Washington holding on to its playoffs. It is nice to see a publication like Athlon reinforce my my prediction of Ohio, uh, no, Alabama, Florida state opening the season and Alabama, Florida state probably closing the season. Yeah. I don't think it, people are like, how will that affect them? I mean, obviously both teams want to win the game, right. but just don't get blown out. That's my, that's my advice for both coaches, which I'm sure they're listening Don't look bad and give us something to poke a hole in later in the year. The thing yeah, that scares I, me the most, sorry to cut you off, Bill, is, and Bill, you can probably refute this. This is, this could be catnip for the people who argue against eight teams. And the whole devaluing the season. So I'm worried about that a lot. You're worried about people not saying there should be eight teams? I'm worried that 
if the, I'm worried about a perception in hindsight. We go through and look at, let's say Alabama and Florida State both make it back. I don't know exactly what the outcome is that would be the worst situation. I just don't want to give ammo to the people who say, because I, I, in, in my, I, I've always advocated eight with automatic bids and, and then an at-large for, for the G5. That's always been, to me, the best thing that we could, we could create. But if Alabama-Florida State is not inconsequential, but if they both make the playoff, whoever took that L in the, in the early season, I feel like that's going to feed that, that argument. That, hey, it didn't matter anyway. Yeah, I see what you're saying, but I think that's almost overthinking it. I mean, because if you go to eight, then maybe Ohio State, Oklahoma doesn't mean anything. And then, so your point is like, right. why we then we a they don't why, why do we have these these great matchups early season? I, I it, it's it's a valid point, but I don't think it's going to be the reason we do or do not go to eight games. Yeah, it's a political and, talking point. It's just basically we we wait around and is, and we pounce on whatever evidence we find, uh, and that's why we don't need an eight team. You know, it, it doesn't really right. um, the depth of the conversation doesn't ever actually need to go that far. But no, what I was going to say a second ago was that I was I was happy to see Athlon kind of boldly putting Washington ahead of USC because I, I just finished the USC preview. It'll go up as we're recording this. And then tomorrow's Washington. And I kind of expected when I went into it to have USC ahead. And it was a lot dicier when I was done with the USC preview. Like, wow, they really do have a lot of questions on the offensive line. They really did give up a lot of big plays last year defensively. They really did, you know, new kicker, new this and that. Like, there are more questions. What was funny, though, as I was writing this preview, was that it was it was an anti USC it was the anti USC preview in that I was convincing myself to put them high because of results not because of potential like well, it, a lot of that's the exact opposite of what you're supposed to do with USC but um, basically a lot of the the, the reservations I started to find myself having about USC they had last year too and they blew everybody out so. Maybe that's not that big a deal. Maybe they should be high anyway. But it was weird. I, that's not the, the normal uh, path of logic there for, for a USC preview. Bill, so, so what you guys are saying is that you've noticed an emerging trend of, of a lazy media narrative developing that USC is, is better than they are? are you, is well, is that, that what I'm, I'm hearing? At all. I mean, I, they won nine in a row last year. They killed Washington. They killed... Um, they had in Colorado their only other loss besides Michigan. Like, they beat Penn State. They could not have proven more uh, once Darnold went to quarterback. The only time they lost was first game with Darnold as quarterback. The defense hadn't quite clicked yet, and they got, like, 38 unlucky bounces. Like, they were an absurdly good team, better than, uh, you know, even the stereotype USC uh, after yeah. about October 1st last year. So I have no problem with them being ranked really high. I just... Like I said, I started finding holes to poke in them and then realized, well, they had those holes last year and they were awesome anyway. So, so I was on a uh, Michigan podcast a few weeks ago. Um, a lot of it was talking about our top 50. But they you know, asked me at the end, like, what's one pick you, know, you don't feel good about in your top tw- 25? And I was like, uh, you know, I wasn't ready for the question. I go, USC, you know, and just kind of blurred USC at number five. And then I got someone on Twitter said that, you know, why, why do magazines like yours always have USC high every year? I don't, I don't get it. And I looked it up. You know, we had – we had USC last year, like, 25. One year we had them 8, then 20, 19, and 8. So I was like, we don't have that. So it's, it's kind of a false narrative that USC's ranked high every year. It's just that we remember the years that everyone has them high right. and they don't pan out. Right. Well, I mean, they I, were like, I also think it is a laziness on the part of the collective media because most of us are east of the Mississippi. And I do think that what I'm referring to 
is when you get into June, July, and August, regardless of the year, whether they pan out or not, when, when people say, all right, well, let's take a look out west, it's just a sort of lazy crutch, I think, for a lot of eyes. Well, you know, you always got USC, and it kind of builds from there. I think it's it's a lack of nationalism on the part of college football writers. It starts there. But, I mean, look, to be honest, at the end of the Rose Bowl, I thought, wow, this is a completely different team than it, than it was on Labor Day, more so than I think maybe any program in the nation, at least yeah. for, the, for the positive. And, and, and one thing that – sorry to interrupt you. One oh, yeah. thing that was almost a, a tiebreaker for us was Chris Peterson. You know, yeah. just his track really? record. Yeah, I mean, just – and that happens a lot. I mean, when we're when we're like we're deciding between fourth place and you know the Big Ten West or whatever, is it this coach or this coach? You know, when things look really close, obviously we look at the schedule, we look at everything, but coaching matters a lot too. It is funny. Uh, USC and Oklahoma are both like this recently. So it's not the narr- It's not that the narrative is lazy and we all, and everybody always overranks USC. It's that we're always a year behind with both the USC and Oklahoma. Like the last six years. Um, 2011, USC started 25th, finished sixth. So overachieved, over like easily overachieved. Next year they started first, ended unranked. Next year they were pretty much the next two years they were pretty much dead on in terms of where they started and finished. And then in 2015 they started eighth, finished unranked. 2016 they started 20th, finished third. Like they're always we're a step behind. OU's basically been the exact same way. We we are never quite catching up to what they're actually capable of. But I think the continuity here with USC, you know, with not only Helton but then, but having Darnold back, having Jones back, having more experience on defense. Uh, made me comfortable with them. I just I think I'm also very comfortable with Washington. I totally agree with what Mitch said about how Peterson ends up being a tiebreaker and and what they're doing. It, it doesn't get written about it near as much. When it comes to Washington, that's Washington's fault because they are notoriously closed off from from national media access, from local media access. And I do think they suffer for it to some degree, but it doesn't yeah, matter. They've never they, responded. I've, I've probably sent them three or four requests through the years. They've never responded to one of them. Well, even when I back channel to get to Washington, it's usually at, at some point there's someone will just kind of say, and, you know, this will be way off the record texting, where they're like, that's probably not going to happen for you. And that's fine because Peterson is such a, you know, in terms of character, God, I hate in the post-Briles era to, like, assign a character rating to someone because you never know, but... If if you know Peterson's always been a stand up guy, and when he when he does have media availability, I think he's been pretty cordial and, and pretty honest. And so, if that's how he wants to run it, that's fine. It's not the end of the world. But uh, to the point at hand, I think it's um, USC's a um, I don't know. It, it's an easy thing to pick on, but if you believe that coaches or if you if you believe that young players in college football, which we always talk about, is another cliche. If they adopt the demeanor of their head coach. Um, that was the other thing towards the end of the Rose Bowl. I thought if the, he really can maintain the talent and the recruiting and the development, this is the most consistent guy that USC has had in years since Carroll. And Carroll was still this big celebrity superstar. So all of the guys that followed Carroll had fatal flaws in their personality. I think I, even, even to some degree, Ogeron did, even though he did a really, really good job. And so if they're able to become a consistent, less dramatic internally program, that is sort of scary. I think the thing that I picked up on last year, especially in the Rose Bowl, a little bit in other games too, but um, they were on the sidelines, like hopping up and down, like an actual, like passionate, almost underdog type team. Every time that somebody made a, a good play for USC, everybody was jumping up and down on the sidelines. It was like a high school game almost. And not the NFL team that, that LA always treated them like. Right, and not the, you know, the Sun Bowl against Georgia Tech that year where everybody was just like, well, how are there still 18 minutes left in this game? How are we not back in the, you know, 
But I mean, they if he gets that going with with four and five star recruits, then I still feel like the Helton hire was a little bit on the lazy side. Like they eliminated thirty eight national names because he, uh, Helton had quote unquote USC ties, which are is the most overrated thing you can possibly have in, in uh, hiring a USC coach. But in this case, he 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 found Darnold. It took him a couple of games, but he found Darnold, um, and he got everybody just caring, and and that's enough for USC. Hey, I I agreed with you totally at the time, and then month by month. I'm starting to understand it may have actually been right. a good right right for the wrong reasons we'll yeah, say. My, my whole thing with hiring is if, if that coach didn't have ties to your school would he, would he be on your top 10 list right and he would not have been a, no. and here, here's a case where I'm wrong I said this about Wisconsin with Paul Christ why was Paul Christ would not have been on Wisconsin's short list if he was not the previously a player there and a coordinator there coming off like his ninth six and six season at Pitt <laughs> But it turned out that it looks like a really good fit there. I feel so, like Mitch. I feel like Wisconsin always gets an asterisk for one <laughs> for one large athletic director sized reason. Yeah, I hey, don't know if talk- you're ever really the coach at Wisconsin. Good point. Can we talk about another team in narratives that, that that's come up a lot for me? Yeah, sure. Okay. Auburn, Auburn this year, where you know we've got them ranked ninth, we've got them second in the SEC East, yep. ahead of LSU, okay. and then I get on the radio interviews and stuff. You know, they always disappoint. Whatever. And my with with Every team, I like to say, we try to treat each team as its own body of work each year and not just because Auburn made us look bad two years ago when we had them in their playoff predictions. That doesn't mean that this Auburn team is going to, you know, fall flat on its face. Um, and I don't know what you guys think specifically about Auburn this year, but I just it's come up a lot in in, in Sort of like the USC thing. Well, they're always overranked. Well, just, because, just because a team wasn't good two years ago doesn't mean they can't be good this year. Well, yes. and two, like in November of 2014, I think that's that, I assume that's the year you guys are talking about. In November of 2014, they were maybe the best team in the country. They fell apart, but they lived up to the standard they were supposed to set for a decent portion of the of the season until they fell apart. And so, you know, in that case, you know, the timing might have been wrong, but they were clearly good. And the other thing here is. SEC West, I mean, it's a it's you know a narrative, but that doesn't make it not true. The SEC West is really hard, and really good teams are going to go eight and five. And so, you know, they were third in the my year end S and P Plus rankings in 2014. Even though they were eight and five, they finished third. Uh, they were 13th last year at eight and five. They weren't as good as Oklahoma. They weren't as good as Alabama, but they were good. And now they supposedly have a quarterback upgrade. I, I'm starting to tap the brakes. I've heard too many good things about Stidham, and I'm I'm just instinctively tapping the brakes now. But if they get any better at quarterback, their defense should be good again. That sounds like a top 10 team. Yeah, and they were great. They were great last year offensively for a stretch, and then Sean White yeah. got hurt. Yeah, October. Uh, they were unbelievable in October, and then they fell. Yeah, and partly because he got hurt. The quarterback yeah. got hurt. The perspective that you assign in the SEC West, I feel like up is down. There's no gravity. There's no rule. Nothing that you would govern logic by because of the madness that has been created by Alabama. And I'm not just in the Iron Bowl way, just in general. I talked about this on Bud Elliott's recruiting podcast yesterday, and I talked to, uh, someone brought it up in a radio segment to me. As an exercise, it was like sort of a trick. So let's say Nick Saban's the best coach in, in college football. Well, then name the next, you know, name two through ten. And then you do, and what you realize is you go two through ten almost certainly, and you don't go back to the SEC now. And so that it, th- there's a lot of factors in that. I think the Big Ten waking up financially and understanding the new rules of the game. But I also think that there is a byproduct of the Saban era. And so the rules by which these schools, specifically Auburn, LSU, 
Um, not so much the Mississippis because of that second-class citizenry, uh, but Auburn, LSU, A&M, and maybe, maybe Arkansas, the way they, they view themselves has just kind of gone haywire. Yeah. I mean, for, for what someone's done, he's had flaws. For what Malzahn's done post, uh, let's say, post-title game, there have been flaws and, and weaknesses. But in, I, I think in any other if – you, if you put the Alabama situation in a vacuum – these coaches are just viewed so much differently. And other coaches will say that. And coaches at these schools will say this, even though they know the reality. They know that sharing real estate with Alabama, it just causes an insanity in your fan bases because people are no less passionate or invested, be it financially as donors or boosters or just just as plain old you know sidewalk fans at College Station and Auburn and, and these places just because Alabama's winning these titles doesn't make it like there's no complacency in the passion of these fan bases and it's just driving people crazy. <laughs> I mean, I, if you took Malzon and you took the Auburn program that could still get those players and run that system and put it anywhere else, I think the perspective on Auburn would be totally different. Yeah. I mean, that's what's funny is you talk about, you know, no other great coaches in the SEC or great proven coaches. That's part, part because everybody's trying to get a Saban, and, and that's been hilarious to watch. So here are the last few teams that have actually beaten Alabama. Clemson, Mississippi, uh, Ohio State, Mississippi, uh, Oklahoma, uh, teams that have absolutely no Saban ties whatsoever. And, and then Florida goes and, and gets a guy with Saban ties and, and uh, Georgia goes and gets a guy with Saban ties and all Tennessee these tried it last time, not, not Butch, but Derek, you know, he was on his staff. It's yeah, no, it's, it's possibly it's, it may end up being in history, one of the worst trees in college football, but I don't think that has anything to do with Nick and everything to do with people trying to find uh, some severely undercooked future Sabans. Are right. we talking about Nashville Predators diehard fan Nick Saban? Is that the same guy we're Damn talking right. about? Right. Hey. Okay. If, okay. If you owned a Mercedes dealership in a city, you would jump on that bandwagon. <laughs> you know, make yeah. that make that pocket money. Um, all right, we're gonna shift. So Sneaky Mitch uh, was signing. I don't know how it worked for you, Bill, but um, going through features again. I I do investigative work. I do feature work. That's sort of the bread and butter for me. I usually, even on this podcast, shy away from comparative analytics. Or debate, just straight up one for one debate, like like the kind of logic and dialogue that rules like the NBA. I I don't know how to process that. I, I usually think a lot of it is pointless, but the amount of attention that's come out of this top fifty uh, section, it's in. But by the way, but it's, it's, in the, it's in the national edition. Is it in every it's, edition? It's in both. Okay. Yeah, every edition. Okay. So Mitch very very sneakily just said, "Hey, do you want to get in on this top fifty voting?" It's the top 50 players of the Athlon era. And I said, yeah, sure. No, yeah, that's, that's fine. And then I look at this bank of names that you sent along. Did you, did you, I get, did you send that to everyone? Yeah. Yes. How long was that list? Uh, several hundred, I think. Yeah. So let's say it's like 400 names. You have to find 50, and then you have to start, and this is where it really bothered me, was figuring out, okay, you've got your 50. Who's better than who? And then what's your how in the world do you do you measure that? And so that's what drove me crazy on this thing. So I spent about I lost a day revising <laughs> and picking at it and getting mad at it and then feeling really stupid. And then I look at the panelists who just have way more institutional college football knowledge. So for instance, like Tony Barnhart, who's been around the sport, you know, as a vanguard uh, SEC journalist, and I'm like, I don't, I, I'm not going to recall things or know things off the top of my head the way Tony did. So. Mitch, do you have our individual ballots? 
Yes, I'm staring at them, and, oh, and I, uh, I'm staring I, at mine too, and I'm already hating it. Okay, so, so real fast. I, I asked, I asked before we oh, came God. on this if I if I could out you guys. Yeah, for go someone. for it. Okay, so well, hang on. Let's do this. So if you haven't read the magazine, obviously pick the magazine up. Of the top fifty, I'm going to do the top ten real quick. Okay. Yeah, go, go ahead. Okay, so uh, we start at 10, Tony Dorsett of Pittsburgh. Number 9, Deion Sanders, Florida State. Number 8, Vince Young. I think that's a little low. Number 7, Hugh Green of Pittsburgh. Wait, we had two Panthers in the top 10? Wow. T- uh, number 6, Tim Tebow. Number 5, Bo Jackson. Number 4, Earl Campbell. Number 3, Archie Griffin. Number 2, Barry Sanders. And number 1, Herschel Walker. The top 5 were all running backs. Um, yeah, I was a little disappointed by that, but I, I get it, you know. All right, um, all right, Mitch, what was my top 10? Okay, you're well. Okay, I gotta. I don't have it organized by that. I have oh, okay. each person based on what the t- overall top fifty is, where you had it. But I could figure it out without stammering too much. You had Cam Newton number one, Herschel oh, Walker. And Cam, oh man, Cam Newton. Just, woo. Cam Newton was very polarizing because he had one of the best seasons ever, right. and it was up. To, it was up to the voter to determine if that was enough. Basically, the only criteria was you had to play at least one season in the past fifty years. You had Herschel Walker, number two. Mm-hmm. Um, Deuce McAllister, number three. No, I didn't. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. John Elway, who never went to a bowl game, number three. That's just an editorial comment there by me. Uh, no, actually, that's not you, Stephen. I was, yeah, I no, got, wait, I didn't. Elway, did I, got, I, I got my columns confused. Okay. Tim Tebow. Yeah. Vince Young. Okay, I feel good. Yeah, that's not, nothing. Um... Danny Werfel, who, who, who to me still is the best college quarterback I've ever seen in. That is a more of a sentimental pick, and I can get to that in a second. Eddie George. Uh, I see him at the gym. I kind of have to. Okay, you guys, you work out. That's that's not a good. No, thing he's at the downtown YMCA in Nashville sometimes. Okay, uh, Reggie Bush, Bo Jackson, Earl Campbell, and Randy Moss were your top ten. Okay, I feel better yeah. than that than I remember. Okay, now real Don't quick, I, did, okay, I jotted this down real quick. I saw at least five guys that you voted for that did not get one other vote by the other 15 panelists. Huh. Uh, Darren McFadden. Okay. Eli Manning, Homer. Jadavian Clowney. <laughs> Eli Manning didn't get a single vote by anyone else? Did not. I'm no. actually going to ride for that one. You know what? Okay. As, as, as critical and, and abusive as I am to my alma mater, that's ridiculous. Okay. I'll give you the 15 other emails of the people, and you can uh, fire them all. Jadavian Clowney. Fine with that one. uh, Eric Crouch and Terrence Cody. No one put Mount – well, I'm fine with that. Yeah, that one's, you know – Put the big boy in there. Now, to me, that's just position bias. Could be. Now, now to me, and and with all due respect, Bill Connolly, the the most surprising omission of any voter – was the, that, and I think I asked you about this, was that you did not have Archie Griffin, who yeah. came in third. Yeah. Is that something that you, like, after we put our magazines together, I look at him and say, you know what, I wish we would have done something different. Are you, are you, can you go to bed every night not having Archie Griffin? <laughs> there are some picks on here that I'm looking at that I made that I'm like, what the hell, how did Darren Sproles make the list? But um, at the same time, okay, so it was partial, I'm not going to lie, it was partial protest vote. Because okay. I, th- I, I feel like... Archie Griffin was maybe like the tenth most deserving of two Heisman's of anybody. Bill, are you on the Michigan payroll? Well, uh, you know, I you I, I, I cannot confirm or deny. No, um, I I 
guys like Herschel deserved two Heismans before Archie did. Lots of guys deserved two Heismans before Archie did. Um, and so I think it was a protest because I knew that he was going to end up very high because he won two Heismans. And so I was trying to use my vote as a way to kind of push it down maybe one spot. Maybe, maybe Barry got in at number two because I didn't vote for Archie, and Barry Sanders was a much better running back than Archie Griffin. Boom. I'm looking right now. I, I, I enjoy a strong political stance, so I appreciate <laughs> that. Looking at the voting, Archie Griffin – would have not it's impossible if you had him number one he still would have finished third so okay okay just like well, the real politics, Bill, your, your vote doesn't matter <sighs> okay i tried okay um, two a couple other surprising ones and this will refute uh godfrey's claim that you're on the michigan payroll you did not have tony dorsett or charles woodson both top 13 guys so here are the guys i did i i separated it out by uh, by um uh, position just so I could kind of see uh, I had ja- the, the, the DBs that I had in this case ahead of Woodson were Jack Tatum I'm okay with that Ed Reed Terrell Buckley Deion Sanders and Eric Berry now Eric Berry uh, maybe there there was like sentiment drifting in there because of uh, you know what he's been through the last couple of years I don't know but he was awesome he was tremendous he was um, close he came in 68th so he was he was Strong okay. of others receiving votes. Okay, so so yeah, I mean that's that was the, the that, those are the DBs I did pick. Now, I mean you could make a case for Woodson ahead of, of Barry and so, well ahead of any of them really, but Tatum, Reed, Buckley, Sanders, I feel pretty dang good about. And uh, so really, you I'm, also I'm, did not have Ronnie Lott by the way. That wouldn't surprise me. I could have sworn I selected Ronnie Lott, <laughs> but you know this was basically I took your list and I immediately went through and and looked at every single name and went, do I think he could make my top fifty? And just went like yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And so the first list I had ended up with I don't know 128 guys on it, and then I had to start filtering down. And I did like you caught this one, thank God. Um, you, you emailed afterwards and basically said, Hey, uh, did you mean to leave Tim Tebow off? <laughs> and I said, Oh no, I absolutely did not mean to leave Tim Tebow off. So I believe he got, he got my vote, uh, at number 40 instead of Tell you what, I'm starting to feel a lot better about my ballot. I oh, know. Uh, God for years was not as bad as you think. You know, you, you, you it was reputable. Thank you. Okay. Uh, <laughs> one of the most, one, one of the most polarizing guys who was like a, who was, who was on every ballot except for one was Tommy Fraser. Yeah. Some people just absolutely thought he was like top five. Some people barely, he, he had seven votes in the top 15 and it looks like about six votes in the forties. I had him fourth. Like I, I, he won me over in terms of college quarterbacks. It was him and Werfel in terms of just purely college success. Uh, those were probably, those, those are tremendous. And of course I didn't even have Werfel very high, but anyway, yeah, so, like, Werfel, Bouncing around real quick, yeah. Werfel to me was the best college quarterback I've seen in person. Uh, Tebow might have been second, um, and uh, to I do think that we there was, and I, I think we spoke about this before the podcast, guys. Uh, Bruce Feldman and Stu Mandel were for, uh, were nice enough to talk about this list on their podcast, and I agreed with one thing: they their, their consensus was kind of a anti recency bias that that some of the more recent guys we didn't give enough stock to, like a Marcus Mariota, yeah. who was just crazy, because this is a college football list of the top 50, and we see Hugh Green, and I, I'm i 45, and so Hugh Green's a little before my time, but I've always heard how awesome he was. So Hugh Green has to be one of the top 15 players that maybe if we redid this, or if I redid mine, that I would we, we, uh, the Athlon one, we would have some of the more recent guys higher. Yeah, so the team of- like. I, I, I was just making fun of Bill for his ballot, but my number one my number one pick is at thirty. 
So I guess that I was way off there. But yeah, that's right. You had Cam Newton number one. You don't get to you don't get to say anybody else's balance. Hey man, fly, I'll tell a quick story. I uh, got married, walked down the aisle right as he was beating LSU. Uh, we delayed our honeymoon for work reasons. I wasn't in the media at the time. We were in Oxford like a week or two later to see some friends and uh, a friend of mine in the administration at Ole Miss said, do you want a field pass? I wasn't in the media at the time. I stood on the field and watched Cam Newton against like a really bad Houston at Ole Miss team. Like, like the opponent to me doesn't even matter because I've never seen standing on a field an athlete like that. Uh, it not, it's not the quarterback position. It doesn't matter. I'm just saying as – it's, it's one of the most unbelievable things to see someone move and react and play football like that. It was just unbelievable. And I will not judge because that's basically the reason I picked Ndamukong and Sue number five. Because in terms of college athletes doing playing college football, being on the field with other college athletes, he dominated at a level I've never seen anybody dominate before. Uh, and, uh, when he caught fire, I mean, that whole – that that whole 09 Nebraska it was basically a, they played a dime they played a dime defense and and got as much speed on the field as possible because they knew he was going to blow up three blockers on every single play and he did and that's he, he his 09 season was just uh, absolutely ridiculous Werfel hey, is yeah Werfel was my only other bias I mean all joking aside about this vote Werfel was another bias pick for me because the 96 Gators for whatever reason it, I had watched college football as very at a very young age but my parents went to an FCS school that was never on television and we lived 13 hours away 14 hours away from Georgia Southern and like we it was a different experience for me to come to understand college football and I was basically in the northeast so that was like Notre Dame fans and that's a whole other thing the 96 Gators were an access point unlike anything else I had ever seen and so worthful to me just like Mitch said there, I, I think it's a lot of it's hyperbole now, and it's a lot of it's nostalgia. But the way Werfel played to me was just it was it was something different. Yeah, I saw that '96 Florida team. They came to Vanderbilt. They were a 43 point <laughs> favorite against a Vanderbilt team that went 0 and 8 in the SEC. Oh they won 28 <laughs> 21. Vanderbilt ended up having three. You, you look back at teams. Three of their four stars in the secondary ended up playing in the NFL. So that was a great, you know, Warfel versus a good second. But just his ball placement is just it was unbelievable. Like, you know, I know why he wasn't a good NFL quarterback because he couldn't make all the 30-yard out, all that. But just being able to put the ball in the right place was just – it was phenomenal. But, Looking hey, at the, I, oh, I got a question for Bill. Then you had one guy, Bill <laughs> – Unlike Connolly, I mean, unlike Godfrey, who had like seven guys that no one else voted for. I'm creative. <laughs> you you only had one guy no one else voted for. Do you know who it was? Could you uh, guess? Uh, let's see here. I'm going to bet that Chase it was. Thing. Shut up. Um, Demario Crockett. Wow. That, that's, presu- that's, for the, that's for the 75th anniversary. Okay, yes. That's presumptive. Okay. Um, how about. Uh, put it this way, he's lucky he w- didn't try to transfer because his head coach might not have let him do it. Ah, Sproles, right, yeah. Right, yes. Yeah, that was I, – I, I'm still – I like that I, pick. I love Darren Sproles, yeah, but I can't – Yeah, tiny dancer. I can't defend that pick necessarily. Once I see uh, the, uh, some of the guys I didn't vote for, I can't defend that pick. I will I will take a loss. Most of the guys I voted for a lot higher – or the, then you know then where they finished, I'm pretty much okay with. I'm okay with Stillwagon and Russell Maryland, uh, who didn't make the list. I'm okay with Lincoln Kennedy, who didn't make the list. Uh, I had them all uh, at least in the top forty, I think. 
But yeah, I can't defend Sproles. I love Darren Sproles to death, but I can't def- defend putting him where I, 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 I was going to out someone for what I consider to be a horrifically bad pick. And I just hit my spreadsheet, and it was his name is Stephen Godfrey. <laughs> I swear, to, I forgot to, that I thought this guy this guy only got one vote, and I thought it was absurdly high. Okay, defend Rashawn Salam, the late Rashawn Salam. I liked watching him. Here's my defense. <laughs> no, here's my and here's because I was about to jump in and defend Sproles for Bill, and 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 that's fine. I'll I'll, ref- I'll defend Rashawn Salam. This is a flawed sport. And metrics are insane. Ask Bill, right? The the amount of Shut perspective, up, great. The, the amount of weight and and consideration that we have to put in to the, to the weirdness of this sport, where you like Cam Newton plays for a year. Most most of the modern athletes are playing for two and a half. The physicality, the structure, and the dynamic of the game on a fundamental level has changed so much in fifteen years, let alone thirty. Right. That when you come down to, and this is why I finally just came, like, was at peace. So if, if I'm the only person that had Salam on there, it doesn't shock me. Or the five other, six other guys, whatever. It's that this, you, you, you're probably not here voting on this thing if you don't have a, a really bizarre passion for this sport. And that passion is not based on sitting down at the end of a season and saying, wow, this statistical performance was impressive. It is the singular what? memories that you have. Who are, you talk- who are you talking to here? My God, am I not here? No, buddy. Look, I'm not. I'm defending your Sproles pick. <laughs> Mitch is our marriage mediator today. Oh, yes. uh, so this, this is my defense for Bill picking Sproles or me picking Rashawn. I think ultimately you have to. I think it's totally okay in this argument because it is so subjective to just say, you know what, this guy, I had. This is how he affected my perspective of the sport. Now. I don't know, maybe if you like went to Arkansas State and you're like, man, Nick Nochi, he blew my mind <laughs> and you put him in your top 50. I don't know why I pulled that name out, but I went to Memphis and Danny Wimprine helped me discover wow. college football. You know, I get like, that might be a stretch, but when you talk At about... At least Salam won a Heisman Trophy. It, okay, thank you. See, and, I, and, and honestly, I really did not want to go by Heisman's because... Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, Mitch, I, I know you've listened to the show. I don't think like you listen every week, but I am, I think probably in terms of national media, I don't know anyone who hates the Heisman more than me. Um, I, I think it just comes down to memories and I think it just comes down to weird stuff. For me, as a, as a feature writer, it's more storyline and narrative sometimes. So for me, Cam, I think Cam at number one sort of defines why I do this this job and and some of the corners that I spend a lot of time in in this world. But let me transition out and pivot. I talked about Cam and specifically the memory I have of standing 15, 20 yards away from him while he worked his magic. You have a a pretty cool job that I don't think our national audience knows about, Mitch, and and that you basically get to do the same thing 12 times a year now. Yeah, I've been the uh, sideline reporter uh, for the Vanderbilt Radio Network um, for, I took over in the middle of James Franklin's second season, which would have been 2012, and Vanderbilt proceeded to win its first seven, its next seven games, and then went nine and four the next year, so I was, Vanderbilt was 20 and four in its first 24 games with me as sideline reporter, and if you know anything about the history of Vanderbilt football, that is just like an astronomical winning, it's a good winning percentage for any program but for Vanderbilt so I thought it had something to do with me but it it did not have anything to do with me but you don't um, know that for sure 
True. That well, then I stayed on the job and went zero and eight in the SEC the next year. So no, it, it has been a ton of fun, and I really had no experience. I was basically what happened was I was uh, co-hosting the pregame show on the Vanderbilt Radio Network, and then in the middle of the 2012 season, Kevin Ingram, the sideline reporter, got a gig doing play-by-play for OVC football on cable. So they just kind of thrust me into the job, and it's been a lot of fun. I mean, it just changes your your perspective on the sport, as you've talked about, you know, you've been on the sideline watching games late, just the, 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 the physicality of the sport, how good these guys are athletically. Uh, it's amazing. But out of all of this stuff, people ask me what surprises me the most substitution, actually, like how they know how to get guys on the field <laughs> yeah. at the right. Like uh, there's so many formations now offensively and defensively. You've got three or four guys huddling around Derek Mason, waiting for him to make the defensive call guys come in and out. They see something, they come in and out. Like I'm shocked that there's not like 15 substitution infractions in a game there. Just if you're a fan, let's uh, just spend a few moments watching what goes on the sidelines with guys coming in and out. I, th- I think it's really, really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the, the more I'm around coaches um, and, and like coaches that are coaching at the time, uh, the more like it, it, there really is such a herding cats aspect of everything in the coaching profession. You just, especially at the college level, you just get a few chances to actually like get your, you know, your, your metaphorical hands on a guy and impact him and, and teach him. And so the fact that they that that so much of this uh, that that that, are, that it is as well rounded and as, as well oiled a machine as it is just so, shocks me sometimes. Yeah, and another cool thing is just being you know I, part of the game. I'm in the locker room right after the game because I interview the player of the game, and then our play by play guy Joe Fisher interviews Derek Mason. So I get all the equipment set up. Just being in the locker room immediately after a game, in the emotions, whether it's a big win or a big loss. It's just it's it's an emotional time. I mean, just you just see these guys. They 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 all week they prepare and they just lay it on. I know it sounds like cliche after cliche, but they lay it on the line and they come in the locker room and they've either won or they lost. They've lost. They only have twelve games a year, maybe thirteen. It's not like college basketball where you've got thirty, thirty-five, forty games, or college baseball or anything. It's just you've got 12 times to win or lose and just the emotions in the locker room and, 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 and hearing the players talk to each other. And then after the coach speaks, they all get together with their position coaches. It's just something that's really cool to be around. And it kind of you appreciate what these guys do, the work they put in, the coaches and the players. And I also like watching the halftime adjustments. I go in the locker room and just like, this is working, this isn't working, this is, and they're throwing out like all these it's terms awesome. that are just so far over my head. Uh, but then like, I'll hear some stuff and I'll go out there and I'll, you know, I, I'll think to myself, I bet they're going to do this on the first play and they do it. And I'm like, yeah, that's kind of cool. It is, it is a drug almost. And it, I tell you what, it will reset your compass when you get jaded about this sport. I've had it happen to me so many times, especially this is about the time of year with all the different kind of stories I work on where I just get completely sick of the sport in a weird way of all the crap. And when you find the right when you find the right coaching staff and the right group of kids and you get to watch the, the physical journey like you're talking about, man, it's the best. It really is. I wish everyone could do it once. Yeah, I think, like, I, I've been around a locker room or close to a locker room after, like, an easy win over, like, an FCS team, and they were just giddy and excited. And it, it, I think I, it, I, I, when I'm around people in a given profession, I end up kind of trying to picture myself in that profession. It's just kind of a natural thing and anytime I picture myself as a coach I realize like I would never sleep I would never 
ever be able to turn off my brain because there's always another thing that you know you're not ready on. You hope nobody exposes that you're not ready uh, for it. And you just – you can see how these guys get so obsessed and end up working so many hours. So yeah, you make – Bill makes a good point. Like, and I'm sure it's every coach, but James Franklin's message and Derek Mason's message is we, we, you celebrate every success. Like you only got – if you beat Presbyterian, I don't care. We're, we're singing the fight song. We're, we're getting our mosh yeah. in the locker room. You know, we don't take – you know, I'm sure that doesn't happen in Alabama. But for most programs – you, you got to – they work too hard not to enjoy every positive moment. Yeah. So to that end, Mitch, uh, as I look at 2016 for Vanderbilt, I mean, talk about emotion. And Mason's a guy who's not going to be outwardly he, – he doesn't – as you and I both know very well, Mitch, he, he's not, a, he, he's not uh, on the church pulpit the way James is. Um, but, I mean, this is a Vanderbilt team that there were a lot of questions about Mason. They go in, they – Let's see, they beat Western Kentucky in overtime by one point. I remember this. Then they get into this schneid, for lack of a better term, where they lose four out of five conference games. They beat Georgia. They upset Georgia, I guess you could say. And then you've got the, I'm sure, homecoming game against Tennessee State. But you've lost four or five, and then uh, and then what happens, as we say on the Internet? You beat Ole Miss at home, and you beat Tennessee at home. So tell me about, by like, this. Digits, by double digits both, yeah. Yeah, and, and win those games. I mean, I'll- it was really not just – it was one of the more amazing transformations late in the season. It's because how they won the game. Like, I, I point to the Georgia game. Like, anytime Vanderbilt can beat Georgia on the road especially, yeah. it's great for the program. But the way they beat it really didn't say anything. It's like yeah. they had to make this great fourth down stand. They couldn't gain a yard. You know, they scored one touchdown after a 95-yard punt return, uh, a kickoff return, so there's a five-yard drive. Nothing about that Georgia win really say, hey – Things are changing in the program. And I should point out real quick, in this losing streak, they beat Georgia, Mitch, and, and you can speak to this. You guys go on the road to Auburn, on the road to Missouri, lose by a touchdown at Auburn, and then you lose by, what, uh, nine points at Missouri? So it it's a terrible but great feeling, I assume, in that locker room where, like, there's proof of concept. This thing can work. You're just not there yet. Yeah, and, and I was just going to say, like, the Auburn game actually is when the offense started to realize that the forward pass might work, and, and, and Kyle, <laughs> Shermer was, Kyle Shermer was given some more freedom by Andy Ludwig to throw the ball. And, and Bill, you were at the Missouri game, and I'm sure yeah. you weren't really paying attention to Vanderbilt's off, but, like, after that game, all of my friends, there was like, oh, my God, just, you know, this is awful. I was like, no, just watch the game. They actually did some good things offensively, had some bad turnovers, one ball hit off a tight ends, shoulder pad, and was picked off. Missouri had plenty of bad luck in that game with kicking. Bill could talk about for hours. (laughs) But I wasn't – like, at that point, I saw the offense getting better. But then you go into the Ole Miss game, and you score 38 points, and you score 45 points against Tennessee. Here's a number that, you know, I put in in my Vanderbilt story. Vanderbilt scored 11 TDs in its last two SEC games (laughs) after scoring a total of seven in its first six games. God. I mean, just – the offense was so bad – in the first basically two and a half years of, of Derek Mason, for them to kind of show that. Now, I know, you know, Ole Miss was kind of limping to the finish line and Tennessee had some injury issues, but um, from just from a Vanderbilt standpoint, to see that Kyle Shermer and the offense was capable of that, you know, gives Derek Mason, gives this offensive staff a lot of hope going into the offseason. And when you just, this is, I think, a, a product, what we're talking about right now is also a product of just the 12-game sample. Like, uh, you know, if this was a 31-game basketball season, then there would have been a lot more ups and downs like that but when you've got 12 games and this is uh the s&p plus i love that they finished the way they did in the in s&p plus last year 
Kentucky ended up 67th, Georgia 68th, Missouri 69th, Vanderbilt 71st, and uh, South Carolina 79th. Like they were all, on average, basically exactly the same team. And right. so, so you good, know, when you're playing teams the next year, you know, that's right. You know. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, when you're playing a one game series and not like best of seven, you end up with stuff like this where, you know, Missouri dust basically, you know, brushes the dust off its 2015 defensive game plan and goes out and hits Shermer a whole bunch for the first time all year, they got to a quarterback, uh, in that game. Um, but yeah, I remember talking to Andy Ludwig before the offensive coordinator before that game. And, um, you know, I was talking because Missouri had been struggling. He's like, well, they're doing some different things. I wish they would go back to doing stuff right. they were doing earlier in the year. Right. No, they, they still couldn't stop the run for the most part at the end of the year, but they were hitting quarterbacks again, and that, that made yeah. a little bit of a difference, except Josh Dobbs, who they couldn't hit. They kept trying to hit him, and they kept missing, and he kept running for 80 yards. But, um, but no, I mean, that's over a seven-game series where you get to shift your – you know, you, you see what they try to do here. You make adjustments. They make adjustments, et cetera. It becomes, uh, you know, a uh, more telling thing. And this one is just this is how this one game played out, and you end up – yeah, where you beat Georgia, lose to Missouri, whoop Ole Miss. It, it was a very weird year for uh, Vandy. But in general, offense I do think was definitely better. They got up to 90th in offensive S&P Plus after Woo-hoo. that late explosion. Uh, and the defense was obviously solid. So, um, I yeah, SEC East next year, I mean, those teams are all going to be basically – Georgia will probably jump ahead. But in the, that returning production measure that I had, Kentucky, Georgia, South Carolina, and uh, Vanderbilt are all in the top 10 of returning production. And Missouri is somewhere like 20th or 30th or something. So I think it's going to be a really tight, interesting division to watch next year. Yeah, I think the SEC East obviously is still lags behind, but the, the bottom slash middle – yeah, uh, it's clearly there, might, there won't be a national title contender, but the bottom is is going to rise. Yeah, yeah, agree. Mitch, yes, not sir. to give you a talk radio talking point, but when people look at Vanderbilt who don't necessarily care about Vanderbilt or care even about the SEC, uh, ever since you know Derek Mason left David Shaw, it's been can can Derek Mason turn Vanderbilt into a Stanford of the SEC? And Bill and I have always laughed about that for a number of reasons. Again, not really a good basis of comparison. Can Derek Mason, will Derek Mason, or has Derek Mason, turn Vanderbilt into Vanderbilt's version or a functional Vanderbilt, regardless of Stanford? I I need to go back. I was asked that specific question by a certain talk radio host that I won't name, that I go on the show maybe once every six weeks, three straight shows huh. that very question that's a good I almost, I almost threw my phone against the wall on the third time and hung up not that it, like it's a bad question it just it's just like remember who your guest is and don't ask him the same question every time <laughs> just a little common courtesy there so steven to specifically answer I, you know i think we'll find out after this year yeah. if vanderbilt yeah. is the same type of team and can go six and six even five and seven but you know look good, show some progress offensively, stay sound defensively in the post-Zach Cunningham era, I think you can say, yeah, this is a program that it's not going to, you know, gonna, not going to win SEC East titles, but it's a program that, that should, can be a bowl team three out of every four or five years and just be really competitive. So I think it's a big year for Derek Mason. And, you know, we, we've predicted Vanderbilt to go six and six, three and five, kind of right there. But, like, I – just what Bill was saying, like, we picked Missouri 7th, which he probably disagrees with. But, like, I feel bad about that. Like, I don't think Missouri's a 7th-place team, but I don't think Vanderbilt's a 7th-place team. Just like I don't think Ole Miss is a 7th-place team in the West. But when you do predictions, someone's got to be picked there. I'm in a weird spot this year because I think this is the first time I'm more confident than my numbers in Missouri since, like, 
I don't know, 2011 or something. It's been a long time since I'm looking at the numbers and thinking, actually, I think it's better than that. It's kind of a, a strange place to be. I think it's just basically Missouri returns almost literally everybody on offense, which should be a very good thing, and that the defense almost literally can't get worse. So, you know, hey, that's a good optimistic spin. But I do um, – I'm going to assume that – like, so uh, you and I went to dinner uh, in 2014 when you came to Columbia for the Vanderbilt game. And I, I got the impression at the time that it, it kind of seemed like your impression of Derek Mason was basically, boy, I don't know. I'm, I'm yeah. assuming you know more than you did then when it comes to his, his, uh, his coaching style, his coaching prowess, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, I think in the middle of his first season, it was hard not to have that impression. You know, I was thinking about this yesterday. He only has one member of his original staff still <laughs> with him. Now, some of them have moved on. You know, some, some position coaches, like, got a coordinator job. A couple of them are, are co-coordinators at, at the, you know, the, the group of five level. So, you, in theory, that's a, a promotion. But I think he's he, he kind of, you know, I, I think hiring Carl Durrell, who was his good friend, <laughs> was a, just was a nightmare for uh, as offensive coordinator. That was, and, you know, you, we just never know how guys are going to be in their first year as the CEO. And I think he'd be the first to tell you it was not a good year. I mean, they looked disorganized on the sidelines at times. They started four different quarterbacks. I mean, that's just a recipe. You know, they changed them in games. The message after games wasn't consistent about why what player did, you know, which what player did what. So, um, yeah, I, I think I've seen tremendous growth on him, and I think his coaching staff he has right now, he's got a quiet confidence about him. Uh, he enjoys, you know, being the head coach. I think once he made himself defensive coordinator, that was kind of a bold move, uh, but it's worked out well. Um, it's a bold so move. Yeah, it's, I, a, let me interrupt. it's a bold move. But if those of you remember Stanford absolutely shutting down Oregon, that was Derek Mason. Yeah, it's funny because his first year was a debacle, like just the the – the margin of victory, getting outgained by, but they closed the season 28-21 loss, and then after that game, the weeks the word got out that Derek Mason took over as defensive coordinator, basically called the plays in that game for the first time all year. And I thought I was like, okay, whatever, you know, not a huge deal. But then he makes himself defensive coordinator, and the next year the defense gets a lot better. So it turns out this guy actually is a a, a pretty good defensive coordinator. And you know, recruiting has been—I don't get caught up in recruiting because you know Vanderbilt's recruited the same way. In, in, since I was in college in the 90s, you know, basically it's always last or second to last in the SEC. Uh, seems to be on a little bit of an uptick this offseason. Um, so, you know, it, to, to specifically answer the talk radio talking point that you mentioned, Stephen, you know, is Vanderbilt going to be like Stanford and, have, you know, go you know, win the conference title two, three years in a row? No, the landscape is different. But I think Derek Mason can, can have a solid program. Here's why I want him to be Stanford. Stay with me. Okay. I, I do want to say one thing for yeah. you. And I think, Stephen, you, you've been around, like, I, I haven't been around a coach who's been as universally loved, like, on campus and everywhere. Just, oh, I just hope it works out for him. Yeah, I've yeah, never heard of that. It is true. Yeah. He is such a good guy. I mean, in my interactions with him, but just treating people on campus, other coaches, everyone loves the guy. Here's why I want Vanderbilt to be Stanford. All right. The hardcore football analysis here. If you live in Palo Alto and you own property, you're rich. Okay? Ah. I live two miles from Vanderbilt. Less than two miles. So maybe we can just get like a bunch of software people here and we'll replicate the whole thing that way. How's that? So you think the real estate in Palo Alto has, it's, it's Stanford's recent rise has nothing to do with <laughs> anything else? You know what? I've got, a, I've got a bridge I want to sell you in Bellevue. You know what? My logic is sound. Okay. Um, hey, I live, I, I live in Bellevue and because the new mall coming out, yeah. my property value is skyrocketing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um... What do you feel, not necessarily, not necessarily a prognostication, but the magazine is shipped. It's sitting here. 
what what do you feel like is the thing because this happens every year in college football and this is nothing on Athlon or or anybody hell it happens to us at SB Nation and Bill I think our preview what's our preview August it's usually it's actually gonna get pumped this year I think it's third week August right it's basically it's it's been basically like the Monday two weeks before the season yeah okay so and so so we have this problem what I'm about to ask you what is the one thing that you think isn't represented right now by your preview, by our preview, that's going to happen this year? My, my, can I say wise ass? No, go for it. I, my wise ass answer when I get this is like, if I thought it was going to happen, we would do it, exactly. you know? <laughs> um, so, you know, but, looking but, at but this, you've got, you've had a couple weeks now. No, definitely. Yeah. Um, definitely. Um, you know what? There's, uh, this is such a cop out. I'm looking, okay. Oklahoma state, Texas, you know, we've got Texas number two in the big 12 and wow. we kind of went in, we went into our product. It was me, Steven Lassen and, and, and Braden Gall. And we went into our uh, big 12 meeting and we all kind of looked around at each other. Like we thought we were each going to have to fight for Texas at number <laughs> two. And we all looked around and be like, Oh, we all like Texas. Okay. Texas number two. And we moved on. Like, so I, I, I'm a big believer in like a coach's message can really pay a huge dividend in year one. Now, if they don't start to win there in year two and three, the, the upperclassmen start rolling their eyes with all the Tom Herman stick and all that. But I think he can really make a big impact in year one. So I guess having Texas number two in the Big 12 and 13th overall, I would put that near my top of the list of things that could implode on us. All right. Actually, that, that's another question that we didn't get to up front. You just you just talked about how you guys come into the room. How do you determine these rankings? We uh, Stephen Lassen puts uh, college football rain man puts together ranking sheets for each team. Uh, just a bunch of data, you know, schedule uh, results from last year. He S and P. He uses Bill's rankings. We use uh, from last year recruiting rankings from the last five years. You know, personnel stuff. So then we kind of do our own homework going into the meeting. So starting in fe- late February, we have like today's our SEC meeting. Today's next week's our ACC meeting. So then we just go around and we talk it through. We go conference by conference um, and then come up with our conference rankings. And then when we're all done with that, in April, we go into the conference room, order some pizza, whatever, and then we do our 1 through 130 ranking based on our conference rankings. What was the big fight this year? Um, with Braden, I would I'm say there were a few fights, but. Yeah, there, there always are a few big battles. The SEC East, believe it or not, took a while. I mean, I think Georgia's kind of consensus. I don't like the Georgia pick, but I don't like Florida, this pre-Malik Zaire, or Tennessee enough. Yeah, so like most of I, America, you feel like there is no number one team in the SEC East. Yeah, I want to pick three teams for a tie for third. Exactly. Um, well, that's kind of how they the, do it. Probably the Coastal. A uh, couple of us like Miami a lot. Couple, uh, then someone else liked Virginia Tech a lot. We debated that a lot. Um, I get USC, you know, USC, Washington probably. But I, I would say the I'm looking around. There weren't too many heated debates. I'd say the coastal, the top of the coastal. But the coastal, the coastal is like the SEC West every year. It's just like who knows. Yeah. Yeah, the co- Miami this year, I keep talking myself into Miami and then remembering, oh, right, they might not have a quarterback. And then bumping them back down and then remember they might have everything else and then remember they don't have a quarterback again. Um, hey, Bill, can I ask you about a team that I really like okay. um, that I haven't seen what you've said about them that could be they're just in the really wrong division, NC State? Am, yeah. I, am I crazy to like NC State? NC State has become, when I, when I go on, on these fruitless uh, rampages about uh, pods instead of divisions, NC State is the example. If they were in the Coastal, 
Right. I heard you talk about that. And instead they're like fourth in the Atlantic and it wasn't even geography. It was just random. Hey, we don't want to, let's just mash these teams together and then we'll do this and blah, 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 blah. Um, they got screwed harder than anything else in, in the, in, in terms of division alignment, they're going to be quite good this year, I think. And, and I saw that, and I tried not to have like in-person bias. Cause you know, you see, we talked about like impressions in person, like they, in the bowl game, they're defensive. And talking to the animal coaches, they're like, this team is really good. I mean, they have a top-flight defensive line. they got a quarterback who's pretty good in Lindley, who's been with that coordinator for years back. The, the rare grad transfer with three years of eligibility, right. Ryan Lindley. So, um, you know, we've got them right outside our top 25, but I, I really like that team. Yeah, they were 11th in defensive S&P Plus this, last year. And that now, that does come with the – Notre Dame disclaimer, I actually seriously considered just not putting the Notre Dame game in my database uh, because it was so unique and weird. But even without that game, they would have been a top 20 defense. And so, like, when you have that to build around and then you actually have a lot of pieces coming back on offense, yeah, they, they've got good potential. Again, it just won't matter in that division. All right, Mitch, we're going um, to wrap it up, but I'm just going to basically uh, decide whether or not I like your bowl projections, and it's going to have nothing to do with arguing the merit of a team. Because on podcasting, play nobody. We usually just look at bowl projections and we determine funnest possible outcome. Because okay. outside of the national playoff, that's what it should be anyway. It's an exhibition game. I'm intrigued by the the uh, the vaunted historic camping world bowl, Oklahoma State and Notre Dame. So I approve of that one. Uh, good good matchup. I, I like that one. Um, I would like Wyoming to be in a better bowl. Big shock. I, I will file that complaint with the <laughs> um, The Texas Bowl. Potentially, yes. potentially really, really fun. Bill, are you looking at this? Yeah. Baylor and Arkansas. Now, when you guys, when you guys do this, are, uh, there's some shake, obviously, based on the fact that you've just ranked these teams out. And so a lot of these schools will correspond to, like, a bowl slot. But a lot you're picking because certain conferences are very weird and they just – sort of spit them out, you know, because of all these different reasons. So you guys have some subjectivity here. Do you did you look at this and say like, hey, what's what's cool to do? It, full disclosure, Stephen Lassen does the bowl projections and it's really it's based on our predictions and slotting teams, but also teams not having enough, you know, conferences not having enough right. teams. So I don't think Steven tries to get cute with this. I think he really does. Okay, you're our fourth ACC team. We're putting you there. And I know it doesn't work like that as much anymore. SEC, like we would try not, like we got Vanderbilt going to a bowl game. We try not to put them back in Shreveport. I don't want to go back to Shreveport. Please don't send me back there. So, you know, try not to put them back in, in rematches. My entire college like years, David Cutler. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, I always yeah the bowl matchups are always so you don't want to you don't want to see your beloved Cowboys playing Idaho in the swan song no, of I, just, uh, I want uh, them to be yeah I mean a team that's going to be in the FCS the following year well tell them to be better then I'm working on it uh, the by Texas the way bowl, really the Texas Bowl affiliation it's Big Twelve SEC it should really be Big Twelve versus former Big Twelve. Like yeah. We should Southwest Conference, I should say. So it has to either be Arkansas, Texas A&M, and Missouri every single year. If the Hawaii Bowl is still on uh, Christmas Eve, which is my get drunk game for obvious familial oh, reasons, man. Houston, Hawaii, Houston, Hawaii is that's some, that, as far as pure entertainment product goes. That's going to be great. Also, if Houston is in the Hawaii Bowl, they would be what seven and five. Eight, Probably yeah. We got to pick third. We got to pick third. Okay. I got a quick. I got a quick Hawaii Bowl story. Sort of as you guys would recall from your younger years. Remember the blue gray game? We was always on yeah. Christmas Day. Yeah. Well, I would be at my in laws in Michigan, 
who did not have cable, internet, anything, mm. with my sister-in-law's ex-boyfriend who was a fine arts professor huh. at Michigan State who literally knew nothing about sports. And he, he and I would watch the Blue-Gray game every year together, and he would ask me just the dumbest questions about football. So I, I, imagine. I, I can... I can relate to your getting drunk at the Hawaii, watching the Hawaii. It's a survival mechanism, and when I do that, I want the most entertaining thing possible. I'll go ahead and pass on the quick lane bowl. Oh, you beat me to it. I was about to say that you can tell Steven Lazarus the absolute worst bowl that he's created is Wake Forest versus Michigan State. It's awful. I will will pass that along. Uh, The Belk Bowl could be curious, Louisville and Florida, at least from like a blogging potential. Um, Miami Georgia is a good helmet game. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I, we'll, we'll rattle this off real fast just to wrap up here. Uh, your New Year's Six, Auburn and USF. Interesting. Very interesting. Charlie Strong. I I just got done writing this and saying this on a couple podcasts for SB Nation. I, I don't think that the, the SEC jobs that people think are going to open this year will. But at the same time, Charlie Strong, if USF is in the Chick-fil-A Bowl, is going to be coveted. So that, that would be very interesting. Uh, the Cotton Bowl, Michigan and Oklahoma. Eh. Uh, solid but solid but boringish. Here's here's where I'm going. Here's the Fiesta Bowl, LSU and USC, uh, and then the Orange Bowl. You have uh, Clemson and Penn State, also extremely entertaining. Um, and then obviously you have Ohio State, Florida State, the Rose, Alabama and Washington, the Sugar, and in the national championship, Alabama and Ohio State. Two upstarts and then, finally getting a chance to break through. And it will, yes, exactly. Feel good for the little guys. <laughs> I, you know what, I would be, it, it's redundant as hell at this point, and I do think, like, Alabama is going to, like, corrode the heart out of the SEC if they keep this up, but uh, <laughs> in terms of, like, monu- go, just to talk about memories, like, monumental things that I saw was standing next to Jim Delaney when Ohio State beat Alabama in the Sugar. That was pretty, pretty amazing and really a sea change for, I think, a lot of things culturally between those two conferences. So I'll take a rematch. Yeah, you know what? I mean, as much as we joke about them, it would be fun. You know, it's you know, it would it would be great to watch those two. The, you know, Urban Meyer, Nick Saban. Anytime they can get together, I'm watching. Mitch, we kept you incredibly long, longer than we would for for any uh, normal guest. I feel like we could keep going, but we do appreciate um, uh, you coming and hanging out. Um, this is the plug session, so go ahead, hit us up with Twitter, hit us up with anything at Athlon. Fire away. Well, thanks for having me on, guys. I'm a longtime listener. It's been uh, it's been fun. Um, yeah, if anybody wants to buy the magazine, go to any newsstand that's out there. If you're out of market, if you're a diehard Missouri fan and you live in New York City, which you know I'm sure there are a lot of, sure. Um, Athlonsports.com backslash store. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, Athlons at Athlon Mitch. If you like the picks, Athlon Mitch at Braden Gall. If you don't like any of the predictions, you can uh, tell Braden if that. If you just so want to yell things with cuss words, just do that Twitter handle. Yes, and Stephen, we'll meet next week to talk about your features for next year's magazine. Okay? <laughs> God, I just got but, the shakes. By the way, the so the first time I worked for uh, did the Athlon stuff, whenever that was, fourteen or so, um, I got to go to Nashville, and the three of us got to go to City House, which was as as great as advertised. But it was fun being in the Athlon meeting. Number one, because it is just a bunch of guys in a room like discussing various ways to go about things, brainstorming a lot. It was great, and getting to watch Mitch basically five or six times each day. Just turn to Braden and go, Braden, stop. No, dad, <laughs> stop. That was, that was, got, I, he did, that got, dude I've will got, proselytize for some weird <laughs> stuff, man. I've got kids and then I've got Braden. That's the way I talk about it. <laughs> yeah, no, okay. Which, when, babies having babies because Braden's a dad now. 
All right. By the way, you got me going. I want to go to City House again. I've, I've, oh, I've, been, I've been only one time since then. I, I went in January the last time I was in Nashville, and it was just as good. So good. Uh, Mitch, we thank you for your time. Bill Connell and I, uh, I guess we're going to do this again next week. Um, I will be on the road. so it'll I, be a- I will too, so we'll have to figure that one out. We'll uh, talk. Oh, God. Super Road Edition. I will be shadowing a head coach uh, of a Power 5 institution for a big uh, fat oh. preview story. Okay, never mind. I was going to say, I, I will too, but not Power 5. Never mm-hmm. mind. Anyway, go ahead. Um, so that's it. Um, Bill, you want to do this again next week? Let's do it.